Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Do you ever find yourself all excited? You come home from some pastor's conference or seminar, and you've heard some really inspiring story of what somebody else is doing, and you know you kind of decide that that's God's will and His plan for your life, and you set out to emulate the thing. And, and then two, three months down the road, you're beginning to feel a little bit of, of deprivation, a little frustration, because God didn't do for you what He did for the other guy. As we talk about innovation, continue to talk about innovation, one of the things that I think really, really stands in our way is covetousness. When we covet what somebody else has, we're really denying who we are and what God has invested in us. And, you know, it really kind of comes down to you're this unique creation. You're somebody that God made very, very special. And he has a very, very special thing for you to do. And and the thing that you could do well is the thing that the other person that you admire probably couldn't do well at all. We really need to understand when we want to think creatively, we want to come up and and do the things that that God's thinking in our situation, we're going to have to put aside covetousness and that that whole thing of looking at the other guy and and wishing we had what what he had. I've always heard, as you have, that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And somebody said once, yeah, that's because they painted it. Well, actually, I was surfing one day in Palos Verdes, California. And by the way, Palos Verdes means green cliffs, but it's mostly kind of dry brown grass up there unless you go right in the middle of the wintertime. And here we were in, in late summer, and as we're driving up the hill to drop down to the beach that we're going to go to, all of a sudden, there's this green grass just staring at us. And somebody had painted it. Turned out that they were shooting a commercial there for some TV show. They painted the grass green. So I got to experience the grass is greener, but it's greener because it got painted. You know, when I was a little kid, I went out for Little League Baseball. It was the first year that Little League came to Portland, Oregon. So you can tell by that that I'm a pretty old person. I can actually remember when television came to Portland, Oregon, and they had these little tiny round screens, and, you know, we all wanted one, and it was years later before my family could afford one. But when Little League came, 350-some kids went out to, you know, hopefully make a team. And they, they put the whole league together, and, of course, there's a, a max of number of people that can be on a team. And out of the 350-some kids that showed up, two of them didn't make it. I was one of those two. And I want you to know that I went home really feeling bad about myself because I had been reading books as a little kid, and I decided that when I grew up, I was going to be a professional baseball player. I was going to play for, the, at that time, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, they were kind of my heroes, and, and I just didn't make muster. But an incredible thing happened that summer, right after that Little League tryout, school got out, and this big green truck, this incredible invention, and again, I'm giving away my age because I, we didn't have this before, the bookmobile showed up, and I spent the summer reading books. They'd let me check out five books at a time. Every two weeks, a bookmobile would come. I got into biographies. I got into history. I remember the first real biography I read was of Dwight Eisenhower, and that changed my life, and I really believe that God 
didn't make me so that I could play sports well. I'm not very good. I'm kind of uncoordinated, for one thing. I uh, was always small. It's kind of the runt in my class. The last kid picked whenever they'd choose teams up. You know, I saw that as something wrong with me. I felt bad about that. But the truth is, the Lord kind of channeled me into being a reader, which set me up for the thing that he had called me to do that I was at that time resisting in my life. And so as I think about this whole idea of contentment, of covetousness, of God's supply or his intentional lack of supply of certain things in my life, I really firmly believe that the Lord is just calling us to be who we are, who he's made us to be. And I've talked to pastors who are kind of bummed out because their church is small. But then when you get to talking to them, you find out that the village that they live in is a small place. And that they're doing, you know, percentage-wise, a better job than the megachurch guy down the road that they're looking at and, and comparing themselves wrongly to. And so I think if you're hearing this today, I'd really like you to ask yourself, who am I? You know, what did the Lord have in mind when he made me? How am I made? What do I have at my disposal that somebody else might not have at their disposal? What am I uniquely able to do better than the next person? And think about this. What do I have that the guy who I would compare myself to doesn't have that's actually better for me. And if he had it, it probably wouldn't be so good for him. Or if I had what he has, it would take me off course and I'd have mission drift in my life. I wouldn't catch the thing that the Lord is really trying to do. And so I think that you need to ask yourself some questions. You need to ask yourself, am I content with the person that God may to be? Do I actually believe in spiritual gifts or is that some sort of a, a modern thing that the church has concocted out of out of esoteric verses in the scripture? I believe in them and I believe that God has uniquely gifted me for the thing that he's called me to do and that there are gifts that I certainly do not possess and I don't feel bad about it. I'm not an evangelist. And, you know, all these friends of mine tell me stories about getting on the airplane and leading somebody to the Lord. That is never going to happen to me. I get on the airplane and I clam up. If somebody you know, greets me and they sit in the seat next to me. I kind of grunt back. I'm an introvert. I'm happy being an introvert, but I know that God uses me in the way that he uses me. And I want you to get to the point where you're really happy with you, that you believe in the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Another question that we should ask is, does my lifestyle match my gifts, my calling, my character? Other questions, What are what is my spiritual niche? What is it that I'm doing that only I could do? What ministry has the Lord himself put in my hands. And then the last question is, am I loyal to that ministry or am I somehow not loyal to that ministry because I'm coveting something that somebody else has or some pie in the sky idea that I have? Two weeks before I became a pastor, I've been a youth pastor for a long time, I I was going to start a church in a little tiny building. The auditorium would hold 66 people. It had three children's church classrooms that were eight foot by eight foot. And so I knocked down a wall and did a little drywall. I was very proud of myself and made one of those rooms into an eight by 16 classroom. But we were up against it. We had seven parking spaces in our parking lot. It wasn't a real, real hopeful situation. And then I heard a guy named Chuck Smith, the Chuck Smith that you know of, Calvary Chapel. And at that time, he was pastoring about 2,000 people in a building that was made for 350. And he told how they did away with a lot of the program of the church and they would run multiple services and they'd have people sit outside and look through the windows. They'd invite, this is the hippie days, you know, if you're wearing jeans, come and sit on the floor, around the platform, in the aisles, whatever. You know, in a building made for 350, they were handling six, seven times that many people. To me, this is like, 
wow, God put me in this place and, and, and now he's given me the resources to use the thing and overdrive it as I need to. But further, I was a sort of a wannabe surfer. You know, I won't even call myself a surfer. I used to surf a lot, but I was never very good at it. And so I was just kind of wannabe surfer. I got stuck in the middle of a beach town, but I could relate to the surf population. And I got this little tiny building, and it creates excitement when you have people sitting on the floor or outside having to look in the windows. God put all that together for a reason. And once I began to walk in it and embrace it and own it, enjoy it, Life was pretty good, and good things happened from there. You know, Scripture talks about greed and covetousness. And in Luke, Jesus is talking, and he says, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. You know, my value is not related to how many people go to my church. My value is not related to what kind of a car I drive. The kind of car I drive is I'm into old cars. I got an almost 20-year-old Mustang convertible, and everybody, you know, thinks it's really cool. The car's probably worth like 2500 bucks, and I'm not going to let go of it. I want to be driving that car when I'm 90-some years old, and there's that kooky old guy with that red, goofy car. I just want to be happy with, with who I am. I've caught myself sometimes coveting trophy members. Friends will tell you about, you know, this person goes to my church and they're the biggest of this, or they run the biggest company that does this, or they're the first one that, and initial response is covetousness. You know, God, why don't you send people like that to my church? And and then I begin to look and he probably has sent a few along the way, but we made a deal a long time ago with the Lord that we believe in the book of James where it says you don't treat the, treat the rich person better than the poor person, the famous person better than the you know, so-called insignificant person. They're all the same. And I've come to a point where I see people bragging about, I got this person in my church and they're the biggest of this or whatever. And I just see that as personal insecurity. And I've decided I'm not going down that road. And you know what? Life is a lot better because of that. We read in the scripture that what we covet, what we're looking for, isn't going to last anyway. Paul writes and says, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things we can't see. See, sometimes what I'm coveting is just peace. I just want out of this thing. You know, get me over it. He goes on and says, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting a new car because your car doesn't run. There is something wrong with having to have what the other guy has. You know, when I was a kid in high school, I was I was incredibly stupid and covetous. I grew up without a whole lot of money, and I got a job when I was about halfway through high school. And I always went to school coveting clothes that other guys had. And I went to this high school. It was all male. It was a science and math school. And there's 1,800 kids. I put myself up against 1,800 people's other shirts, and I ended up, as soon as I got a job, with a closet full of shirts. And you know what? you can. And so I, I look at these things, and I think all they do is, is coveting, envy, jealousy. All it really does is sap your strength. And if you really get off in, I mean, you really, really, you know, maybe you get into competition with some other person, and then, then your prayer life kind of goes downhill because you're mad at God half the time, and pretty soon everything that you do is because they did it or they didn't do it. And, and at that point, what happens is you lose your idea. When, when you start to covet what somebody else has, you end up imitating that person as best you can, and then you begin to be a shabby copy of them rather than a, a really good, well-rounded, sophisticated copy of who you are and who God made you to be. 
I, I just look at all these different things in life and, and times when, when we we do covet things. You know, we were in Hawaii for, I was there for 35 years. I pastored one church, the bigger church I pastored. It was Hope, called Hope Chapel, Kaneohe Bay. They've changed the name now to Anchor Church. And we were 16 years in one public school, year and a half in another public school, six months in a park building, several weeks at a beach park with no permit. And that whole time, we're just coveting and coveting buildings. And, you know, I can remember that set up and the tear down. We were at a place called Ben Parker School. We thought it was pretty cool because it was named for a missionary, uh, a public school named for a missionary in Hawaii. It was the Reverend Benjamin Parker Elementary School. It was the, the civic center of Kaneohe, Hawaii. It's it's a place where if they were going to do plays, if they're going to do, you know, we actually sponsored debates with gubernatorial candidates. Our church did, you know, in that place. It was where the, the community came together. We were there every Sunday morning and, and every Friday night and every Sunday night. And, you know, we'd have to set up on Friday night and then tear it down so somebody else could use a thing Saturday and then come in early on Sunday morning and set it all up, sometimes tear it down Sunday after service and then set it up again for Sunday night. That got old. I mean, I'm telling you, that got old, and we got tired of it. And eventually, we were able to buy this property, and and we actually coveted what we had. We we actually bought a leasehold; we didn't buy the property, and we had a 54-year lease on this land. And it was forest, and we ended up hauling like 6,000 truckloads of dirt off there to level some of the steep hillside. But the whole time that we were struggling, 10, 11 years to get a building, we're coveting what God hadn't quite delivered to us yet, and. The weird, interesting, crazy thing is once we got up there, we began to hear people talking about the good old days down in Ben Parker School, how easy it was to recruit because we just asked everybody to help us tear down after church and we'd watch people and the people that we saw volunteering and, and, and jumping in, we knew those are the servers. They're the people who God has put it in their heart to serve other people. And then we'd, we'd, we'd actually instruct the staff, stand up against the wall, don't go out and move chairs and put stuff away. You stand and watch the people because the guy who's scolding other people and saying, you know, don't put that chair that way, put it this way. Well, that guy's a leader. You know, it made life easy to be in this building that we resented because we coveted something that we didn't have. And and it was a really good lesson to us because it was a big, long lesson. You know, for five, six years after we're in there, we're longing for what we had when we thought that we lacked everything. You know, another scripture says that a heart that's at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. You know, I watched a person from a little bit from afar, but I watched one person just begin to covet what another person did, had. And it was a leadership role. The, the covetous began to breed a kind of a, just a bad attitude toward another person. They became argumentative. They became picky and critical. And one of my friends said, that, you know, that person is looking for that other person's job. And if they ever get it, they're going to think that the throne that they're hoping to sit on turns out to be a folding chair. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. That person did supplant the other person. They got in the role, and they found themselves pretty much hating the role and bickering with people around them. We need peace in our hearts. We need to not be envious. We need to relax with where we are right at this moment and who God has made us at this moment. If God wants to promote you to something else, well, then he'll do that. If God wants to blow up what you're doing in a wonderful way, then he'll do that. But, you know, the whole idea to me is that we're just faithful. Paul says it's required of a steward 
that a person be found faithful. It doesn't say successful. It doesn't say that we're playing some kind of a numbers game. It just says that you're doing the thing that God called you to do. You're doing the thing that God equipped you to do. You know, I talk to guys who are struggling because they, they came out of seminary and they had this vision that this was going to happen to them. They're going to particularly be vocational in ministry, and then they have to kind of be bivocational as a fallback, and, and they're hurting over it. And I always think if you could just get settled in who you are, and where you are, then you you might even get a little bit better job. You know, if you're bivocational and you're doing some crumb bum job because you think it's temporary, and, you know, next year you're going to get out of this, you're probably not going to seek a career path. But if you can accept that God has you where he has you and that you're gifted the way you're gifted and that maybe having a secular job is part of that, then you're going to start to look at that as an opportunity for outreach. You're going to look for career path, you know, that you could get a better job perhaps and, and you know, be in this for the long haul and take care of your family in some really, really good ways. I love this scripture. It's my wife's favorite scripture. I, I love it. It says in Psalm 139, my frame was not hidden when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God had written in a book ahead of time the days that were formed for you and for me. You did this, it says, as yet when there were none of them. And then it goes on to say, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You know, that scripture became really personal to me when when I stumbled into it after my mom had told me something that she had told me. And that is that before that she was a believer in Jesus, before she was a Christian, she prayed a couple things. She prayed one thing that I would look like my dad. And uh, yeah, I really do. There was a time when I resented that. Now I take great pride in that. But she prayed the other thing was that God would use me and that maybe one day I'd become a pastor. Now, why would a woman who isn't even walking with the Lord be praying that her unborn kid would be a pastor? I have no idea. All I know is that God began tapping me on the shoulder when I was about six, seven years old, and I hated the idea, but here I am. I, now I love it. I love the idea that God made me to be me. You know, after we get through this little litany here of, of thoughts about what God was thinking when he made us, and that he was thinking these thoughts probably before the world began, he knew us, he knew the call, he knew the walk, he knew the position, he knew the role, he knew the geography, he knew where you're going to live, he knew who you're going to marry. He knew all those things about you before you were a glint in your parents' eye. He knew what he wanted of you, and he knew what he wanted of me. But here's the big problem. If I'm sitting around being dumpy about what I don't have, about the fact that God gave somebody else something he didn't give me, and I'm not able to appreciate that he gave me something he didn't give them, then what happens is, again, I become this cheap imitation of what I'm supposed to be, but I'm locking myself out of God's thoughts. The psalmist says here, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. You know, if I want to think God's thoughts after him, which is the heart of creativity and innovation, I mean, I want to get to the point where I'm maximizing every darn thing the Lord put in my hand. And I'm never going to get there if I'm if my attitude toward God is a complaining spirit. I'm going to only get there when I begin to rest in who he's made me and rest in what he's given me. Godliness with contentment truly is great gain. And that gain actually includes the ability to hear God's voice, to think his thoughts about our situation, and embrace his creativity. The last church that I pastored was a small one. And I could have sat around 
you know, groaning and complaining, the first two grew pretty quickly. This one, it it just grew steadily, but it didn't grow that big. And here we were, we're in a rented movie theater that costs us like $125,000 a year to use a movie theater for five hours on Sunday. It didn't leave a whole lot of money left over for other things. And uh, we decided we're not going to have an office because if you have an office, you got to have a receptionist and we don't want to pay that extra salary. So we got a kind of a uh, it's called Class C Building. It was a kind of a lowbrow location. And we made that place into a meeting hall that we could use in training and teaching and doing things during the week. Uh, we never even had a telephone. We made a big deal out of we're not going to have a telephone because we don't want to spend the money on the phone. We're going to spend the money on ministry. And the city is our campus. And our baptistry is where Hunakai Street meets the ocean for worship nights. Here's this place in this park. Uh, here's a city library that we have, that have a conference room we can use for these things. Here's all these houses and spots in the malls that we're using for small group ministry. We stood up and bragged about that stuff, and people got really excited. And the weird thing is more money came in. But they knew that the money was going more for ministry than it was for hardware. It was was one of those things where we embrace what we have, we embrace who we are, we embrace what God's done, and then he blesses us more, and more things come of it. As we wind this thing down, I want to talk about a passage of Scripture that I really like in the book of Philippians. It's been very meaningful to me, but it was meaningful to a friend of mine. I have a a friend in Mongolia, and uh, when I first met him, I found out that he'd been kind of a cheap shot train robber until his sister found the Lord. And a couple of weeks into her relationship with the Lord, she found this thing that was going to stop this guy in his tracks. You know, he'd get on the train, sit next to you, and just before the train comes into a station, he puts a knife in your ribs and takes away the money that's in your wallet and your watch and whatever else you got that's valuable and then jumps off the train and runs at the next station. And so she finds a scripture where Paul says, I have not yet apprehended or arrested the thing for which I was apprehended by Christ. And she comes to her brother and says, you know, Paul got arrested. I'm praying that you get arrested. And then you know that Jesus is real. And like within four or five days, he got arrested and he surrendered his life to Christ. Now he's a church planter. Very cool story. But as I get in the scripture, it's Paul talking. He says, I press on to take hold of that which for, for which Christ took hold of me. In other words, I'm trying to arrest the thing for which I was arrested by Jesus. And then he says, brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. You know, you could compare, you know, I'm an old guy, and I could compare what I did when I was a young guy and get really bummed out about it. You know, I pastored a great big church twice. And then I pastored a smaller church, and, and now I coach guys and, you know, train guys to be pastors. I loved what I was doing, but today's today. That was yesterday. He says, forgetting what was behind and straining for what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And you know what? I think if we're really focused on the goal, if we're really focused on the call, and we're focused on the call in the here and now, we're not going to have a whole lot of time to be fooling around, getting all covetous about whatever somebody else has or bummed out about whatever it is that we don't have. I have found that the road to innovation runs through contentment. It runs through my call, and then it runs through my being attuned to the Word of God. And as it speaks to my heart, thinking God's thoughts after him. He made me. He made me special. I can only do what I can do. Don't want to do what somebody else is doing. Don't care about that. Do care about being the best Ralph Moore I could possibly be. And I'm hoping that this thing leaves you thinking about how could you be a better you than an imitation of some guy down the road. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.